Well, we want to take some time in God's Word uh, this morning before we continue to sing a little bit more and worship in music. Uh, we want to turn this morning in our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And so please be making your way there. We're taking another break this week from our study of the book of Romans. And we're doing that in order to make sure that we focus our hearts upon Christmas and we understand really what, what we're doing this time of year and what we're celebrating. And so in the midst of all the tinsel, in the midst of all the gingerbread cookies, in the midst of all of the trees and the stockings and the parties and everything else going on, we want to make sure that our hearts are focused on what it is that we're truly remembering and celebrating this time of year. We don't want to get caught up in all of the the hype and all the parties and really forget Christ in the midst of that. And I suppose it is somewhat unfortunate that our Christmas celebration coincides with what was once a pagan holiday, a pagan festival. I think most of you understand that uh, the Christmas as we know it was really put in place by the early church around the 4th century AD in order to, to serve as somewhat of a, a combatant or a, a way to counteract the pagan festivals of the day. There was one in particular known as Saturnalia, which was a Roman pagan festival that took place from December 17 to December 24, and it was a time for the pagans in Rome to really just worship the god Saturn, the god of agriculture and the god of harvest, and to thank him for their harvest season that they had just come through and to look ahead to the springtime when they would plant their fields again. It was a winter solstice festival, and it was a kind of a period of time that was characterized by carousing and drunkenness and gambling and gift-giving and revelry. It was kind of like a carnival-like atmosphere. Many of the traditions that we actually have today around this time of year came from that festival. And so the church leaders around the 4th century AD came together and they thought, we need to have something that brings a sanctifying influence into this pagan festival. And so they came together and they said, let's, let's put together a celebration of the birth of Christ and let's put it on December 25 as kind of a Christian alternative to what is taking place in pagan Rome. Well, it didn't work very well. Because what happened was it just kind of became all amalgamated together and it was hard to distinguish between the the pagan festival and between the the sanctifying influence of the celebration of the birth of Christ. In fact, we don't even know for sure that Christ was born on December 25th. We don't even know the year. We know it was somewhere between 6 and 4 BC. And so it's easy to get lost even today in the midst of all of these traditions and all of the hype that kind of surrounds this time of year. And so As Christians, we take some time to pause every year to really reorient our minds and refocus our hearts on what it is that we are celebrating, that we're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. We are celebrating the arrival on this earth of the God-man. That baby born in a manger grew to be a man, and so it's not ultimately about an infant in a manger, it is about God in a manger. It is about a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who grew to become for us our Savior and our Redeemer. We're celebrating the incarnation. The fact that this time of year we look upon the fact that the infinite, eternal, self-existent, glory-seeking, glory-having God, self-sufficient God, the Almighty God, without shedding His divine nature, actually added to Himself a human nature. 
fully human nature. He had a human birth. He had parents just like we had parents. He had human emotions. He had human needs. He had a human body. And so in the person of Jesus Christ, we have the God-man. We're celebrating then the incarnation. It is truly a, a remarkable, remarkable reality that God in human flesh has walked among us. There's a pastor and author by the name of Mark Jones. He said this. He says, the incarnation is God's greatest wonder one that no creature could have ever imagined. God Himself could not perform a more difficult and glorious work. It has been justly called the miracle of all miracles, end quote. And I think he's right. The incarnation is nothing short of the miracle of all miracles. And so, periodically, we need to slow down our minds, and we need to remove ourselves from the hustle and the bustle of Christmas, and we are forced to admit that there is a peculiar glory about the incarnation. There is something unique, something special, something wonderful, something glorious about the fact that the Almighty God stepped out of eternity into time and space to become our Savior. Last week, if you were with us, you know that we worked through Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And so, just a reminder, we're working our way every year through another section of the, of the accounts of the birth of Christ. And so, we've seen Matthew 1, John 1, Luke 1. Last week, we worked our way through the first opening verses of Luke chapter 2. And we saw that God in His sovereignty used a pagan emperor to actually bring about the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem in accordance with a prophecy in the book of Micah in the Old Testament. That God was working behind the scenes, behind all that was going on in earth. He worked through a pagan ruler, a pagan emperor, a pagan governor to bring about His purposes in causing the birth of Christ to take place in the city of Bethlehem. And it was there in the stable portion of a a house that Christ was born to a young couple, teenagers, 13, 14, 15, not in a nice hospital, not with doctors and nurses around, but just in the stable, a stall, in the, the company of themselves, perhaps with donkeys and cattle and goats around them. There God entered this world, and Mary and Joseph placed Him in a feeding trough. What's remarkable about that is that Jesus Christ entered into this world into a stinky, smelly, filthy stall. And as we said last week, perhaps there's an apt picture there of the fact that that's what Christ came to do. He entered a stinking, filthy world that's full of sin in order to actually bring about the redemption of stinky, smelly sinners who have been transformed by the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. What I love about that scenario, as we saw last week, is that there's no fanfare, there's no, there's no celebration, there, there's no real big thing taking place, no fireworks, no elaborate displays, just a lowly couple from a nondescript town in Nazareth traveling to another obscure little village, giving birth to the Savior, and really, initially, nobody knows. Nobody in Bethlehem knows. None of the religious leaders in Jerusalem know, certainly Caesar Augustus and his entourage in Rome, they have no clue about what is taking place. This event was so far from center stage that initially nobody knows. How contrary to many famous births that we hear of today. Remember just a few years ago, 
Prince George was born. And do you remember all the hoopla and the hype around the birth of Prince George? I mean, this was news. This was headline news for months leading up to it. And, and when he was finally born there in England to the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, it was world-class news. It was announced by Buckingham Palace, and there were gun salutes all throughout the world in capital cities, and there were bells that were rung in churches and Westminster Abbey and other places all around the world. This was not the case with Christ's birth. No gun salutes, no bells chiming, no bulletins sent out through the world. Just a shockingly simple and humble entrance of the king of the world. And what I love about it is initially those who did finally first hear about this were not the elite of the day. They were not the, the religious elite or the people of prestige or the people of power or the, the socially elite. They were not the movers and shakers of the world that were the first to hear about this news. No, it was just a humble group of shepherds, just some obscure men in a despised class of people who were first told about the birth of Jesus Christ. You know, you can't get much lower than that. You can't get much lower than shepherds out in the fields taking care of their sheep. You can't choose a a much more looked down upon or despised class of people to be the first ones to hear the news of the arrival of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's what we find here in our text this morning in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. Would you please follow along as I read? Luke writes, and starting in verse 8, And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. This is the proclamation of the good news of great joy. And what I want to do is I just want to walk through this text with you. I want you to see a couple points too, just very simple points. First, the announcement of Christ's birth, and then secondly, the acclaim of Christ's birth. And I want you to see as we walk through this, just the awesomeness of this moment And I want you this morning to feel the the weight of this moment. I want you to feel the awe and the glory of this moment, and yet the simplicity and the humility of it as well. Let me take you through the first point. Point number one is the announcement of Christ's birth. The announcement of Christ's birth. And as I said just a minute ago, something so significant you think would be preached from the mountaintops. Something as dramatic as this and significant as this would be, would be headline news. It would be the, the people of power, the people of prestige, the, the people with clout. It would be the visionaries, the movers, the shakers, the, the elite of the day that you would think would be the ones to first hear about this. I mean, if you want to get the news out that this is taking place, you don't go to shepherds. 
You go to the people that can get this news out. You go to the ones that can actually make it happen. You go to the people who are in high places, the upper crust of society. That's who you go to make this news known, but not God. When God wants to make known the fact that His Son has been born, He goes to an obscure group of shepherds. I guess that shouldn't surprise us. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied that Christ would come, and He would come to the kind of people that were the low people, the poor people, the the lowly people, the humble people, the outcast kind of people. Those were the kind of people that Isaiah said that Christ would come to. Listen to chapter 61, verse 1 of the book of Isaiah. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Those were the kind of people that the Messiah would come to, not to the movers and the shakers, not to the power people, not to the socially or religiously elite. Those were not the ones that, that Christ would come to. He'd come to the lowly, the poor, the meek, the afflicted, the outcasts. And certainly, shepherds fit that category, don't they? We meet him in verse 8. It says, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. It was in the same region. The region of what? The region of Bethlehem. Verse 7 and the previous verses say that, that Christ was born in Bethlehem according to the prophecy of the prophet Micah. And there he was born, laid in a manger. And it was in that same region, the region of Bethlehem, where these shepherds were out in their fields five miles south of Jerusalem most likely out in the hills, pasturing their flocks. It was out in those fields, the area surrounding this little obscure village of Bethlehem. And Luke says in chapter 2, verse 8, that they were out in their fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. This is what shepherds did. They were just doing what shepherds were supposed to do. They were just caring for their sheep. They were just caring for their flocks. They were watching over them. They were making sure they had the food they needed. They were making sure they had the water they needed. These these were shepherds, and the sheep were their livelihood. And so they invested their life in the sheep. And so they're out in these fields, and they're making sure that they're healthy, and they're making sure that they're protected, and they're making sure that they're taken care of, and they're making sure that there's nothing to threaten them, and they rescue them when they fall, and they care for them when they're weak. That's what shepherds do. And so these particular shepherds are out just doing what shepherds do. Leading, feeding, caring for, protecting the sheep. This was something that would have taken place year-round. Now, there are those today and back then who would say that there's no way Christ could have been born in December. And the reason they say that is because typically shepherds were those who were out in their fields from April to November. That's kind of the, the general shepherding time as they would go out into the fields and they would make sure that their sheep were taken care of. That was the time when, when they would do that from April to November. And so many would point to that and they say, no, there's no way possible that Christ could have been born in December because that wasn't the time for shepherds being out in their fields. But really that's not true. And it's not true because we know from history that shepherds would be out in the fields year round. They could be there all times of the year. And so Christ may not have been born in December, but he may have as well. We just don't know for sure what time of year this was, and certainly these shepherds could have been out at any time of the year tending their flocks. Regardless, here they are, and they're out in their flocks, and notice verse 8 says that they're, they're out there by night. 
That's significant. And that's significant because that's when this event, this encounter with the angel and the angels actually took place. It took place at night. Now, you need to know a little bit about shepherds. They, they would typically care for their sheep during the daytime as they let them out of the pen. And they would let their sheep just kind of roam the hillside and roam the pastures, and, and they would lead them to water, and they would lead them to grass. And so these sheep would be kind of free to roam during the daytime. But at nighttime, that wasn't the case. And the reason for that was because nighttime was dangerous. And nighttime brought predators, and nighttime brought thieves, and nighttime brought all kinds of dangerous hazards in the terrain. And so shepherds, whose livelihood is tied to their sheep, would actually take the sheep into a pen, kind of a sheepfold, maybe made of rocks or maybe logs or twigs kind of put together. So this is what is taking place. The sheep would have been in their pen, they would have been in their fold, and probably it was multiple flocks. They would share this sheep fold, and so there were probably multiple flocks that were brought together into the sheep fold. There were multiple shepherds, and what these shepherds would do is they would kind of take turns throughout the night to, to watch over and care for their sheep. They would take turns. They would kind of work in shifts, and so there would be one shepherd who would lay down at the doorway to the sheep fold to make sure those sheep wouldn't walk out. There would be others who slept somewhere else, and there were others who would stay awake, and during the night they would kind of rotate these responsibilities, and they would just kind of work together as a team to make sure that their flocks were taken care of. The events of this particular night occurred when it was night. Perhaps they're in their shifts already, perhaps they're all still awake, maybe telling stories, maybe playing the flute, maybe getting ready for things to settle down for the night. This is what these shepherds were doing. They were just going about their normal business, their normal routine activities. Now, you need to know something about shepherds. This was menial work. This was low-class work. This was the work that was kind of reserved for, for the lowest of society. In fact, the prevailing idea of that day was that it was such simple work that children could do it. And so in the eyes of the people of that day, shepherds were really nothing. They were the lowest class of, of people around. In fact, the Jewish leaders had such a low view of shepherds that they looked down on them almost as outcasts because they couldn't keep the Mosaic law and they couldn't certainly keep all the extra laws and regulations that the Pharisees had added to that law because they had to work on the Sabbath. I mean, sheep have to eat on the Sabbath, Right? Sheep need to eat, they need to be cared for, they still need to be protected. And so these shepherds would actually be working seven days a week taking care of their sheep, not able to keep the Sabbath, certainly not able to keep all the 603 extra laws that the Pharisees had added to the Mosaic legislation. Because of that, they were looked down upon, outcasts. They weren't allowed to testify in court because of that. They were eventually considered to be unreliable, dishonest, and guilty of stealing sheep. That's kind of the reputation they had, low class, sly, maybe pulling one over on you if they could. These were the people that God first made His announcement of the birth of His Son to. Here's what I love about that. Those are the kind of people God uses. 
Those are the kind of people that God chooses to work His purposes through. His his preference is to accomplish His purposes through the lowly, not the high class, not the high flute, not the upper crust. That's not how God typically works. Now, He can save anybody. He can work through anybody, as we saw through the, the, the person of Caesar Augustus. And yet, the way that God primarily chooses to work is through the outcast, through the lowly, through the meek. He doesn't choose the best and leave the rest. He works through those that the world considers poor, deprived, modest, ordinary, simple, common. People like us. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, Paul says, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that He might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. You know who God likes to work through? He likes to work through the base, the despised, the weak, those who are not noble, those who are not mighty, those who are not wise, and the shepherds fit that bill. And listen, so do you and I. Anyone here want to claim nobility? Anyone here want to claim strength and wisdom and being mighty? No, it's sitting around you are people who are trophies of grace simply because God in His great infinite wisdom chooses to use the weak to shame the strong. That's what we see taking place right here. So here's, here's these shepherds. They're out in their field. They're kind of minding their own business. And by the way, it is very possible that these shepherds are actually caring for Passover lambs, for lambs that would be slain in the temple. Now, you remember Jerusalem is here, and Bethlehem is about five miles south of, of Jerusalem. So it's not a very far distance from the region of where Christ was born to where the Jerusalem temple sat and where all the sacrificial system took place. And so it is very possible that these particular shepherds were actually caring for the lambs that would be sacrificed in the temple during the Passover. How ironic that these shepherds were caring for Passover lambs when the true Passover lamb is born in their very village. Verse 9, And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. This is when things get real interesting. Because here's these shepherds just kind of doing what shepherds do, minding their own business, just doing what they would normally do. It's calm, it's quiet, things are normal, they're, they're sitting around, they're, it's nighttime, the sheep are in the pen. And then all of a sudden, unannounced, comes an angel, an angel of the Lord, who suddenly stands before these humble shepherds. This must have been an astonishing event. And the reason for that is because you remember that an angel hasn't spoken for 500 years. Really, the last time an angel spoke was back in the prophet Zechariah's time around 500 BC. That's the last time really anyone had a, a significant encounter with an angel. Now, we know that just a few months prior to this, an angel, Gabriel, visited Mary, or visited Elizabeth and Zechariah's 
and then a few months later visited Mary, but these angels or these shepherds would have not known about that. So you have to put yourself in the shoes of these shepherds who've heard about angels but have never seen one. No one really saw one. It just didn't happen. It wasn't a common occurrence. And suddenly, out of nowhere, this angel appears. This is shocking stuff. Luke doesn't tell us who it was. We could presume it was Gabriel. He's the the PR angel. He's the one who gets the the gig of being able to go around and announce all the the good things that get to happen to Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and back in Daniel, all those marvelous announcements. So we would presume that this would probably be Gabriel who's announcing this to the shepherds. We don't know that for sure. So here they are, out in their fields. Suddenly the angel appears. And look at verse 9. Look what it says. He stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, I, I think we're, we're so familiar with this story. We just kind of gloss over that and say, yep, oh, the glory of the Lord, that was there. And they, they saw the glory. No, 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 stop. Do you understand this? The glory of the infinite, eternal, sovereign, self-existent God was suddenly shining all around them. It's dark. It's nighttime. And suddenly, out of nowhere, this angel appears, and there's this blazing, brilliant glory that is manifest in the most bright light that you can ever imagine. This is how God manifests Himself. God does not have a body. He's a spirit. And so when God makes Himself known, when He manifests His presence, He can do it in a cloud like He did in the Old Testament or a pillar of fire. And oftentimes that's how He does it. He manifests Himself in light, brilliant light, bright light, dazzling light. This is a manifestation of the, the presence of God. Paul refers to this in 1 Timothy chapter. 6 verse 16, he says that God alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. The glory of God's presence is so spectacular, so brilliant that nobody can approach it in its full, full form, in its full brilliance. In fact, if anyone were to do that, they would be incinerated at once. Remember Moses? Remember, Moses had a question for God. Hey, hey God, uh, Exodus 33, God, I'd like to, to see your glory. I'd like to see a, a manifestation of who you are. I want a, a, a visual manifestation. I want to see your glory, God. And God says to him in return in Exodus 33, uh, Moses, you can't see my face, for no one can see me and live. So the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by, and then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses asked to see the glory of God, and God said in his infinite kindness and wisdom and grace to Moses, Okay, but I'm going to cover you up. And the reason he did that is because Moses would have peaked just like you and I would have. God covers him up. He takes his hand away as he's passing by, and Moses gets a glimpse of the backside of God's glory. You say, what's that? I have no idea. But it was majestic. It was brilliant. So brilliant that when he came down from the 
mountain, his face was glowing with the brilliance of God's glory. Remember the glory of God that entered the temple? 1 Kings chapter 8 says, when they completed the temple, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This was dramatic glory. This was brilliant glory. It was the same thing that happened when they completed the tabernacle. Back in Exodus chapter 40, the cloud covered the tent of the meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is brilliant light, majestic glorious, luminescent brilliance which lit up the sky around these shepherds. Can you start to get a glimpse now of how terrifying of an event this would have been? That's what it says. Look at verse 9. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. You want the Greek? Phoban Megan. You don't need to be a Greek scholar to get that. This was some mega phobia. This was some serious fear that, that welled up in their hearts as they suddenly behold this angel from heaven and they see the, the great glory of God shining all around them. And the only response was that they were literally frightened with great fear. Or they feared a, a great fear. And I'll tell you, this is what you see throughout Scripture. When you study Scripture, you see a pattern that develops over and over and over and over again in Scripture. As people encounter the glory and the majesty and the brilliance of God's glory, the first response is utter terror. Remember Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, in the temple doing his priestly thing, Gabriel shows up. Luke chapter 1, verse 11 and 12 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing in the right of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. The word troubled is the word that means to cause movement or to shake or to stir. In the modern vernacular, we would say he was shaking in his boots out of fear because he's beholding the, the presence and the glory of God manifest in the temple in the form of the angel. How about Mary? Luke chapter 1, verse 30, the angel comes, Gabriel comes and visits her, and the first thing out of his mouth is what? Don't be afraid. Because this is the response of those who see the glory of God. They're manifest in fear. Let's go to the Old Testament. How about Isaiah? Isaiah gets a glimpse of the glory of God in heaven. He actually sees Jesus Christ on the throne, John 12 tells us. And as he beholds this image of, of the heavenly scene before him, what does he say? He says, woe is me. I'm dead. How about Ezekiel chapter 1? Ezekiel gets a similar glimpse of the glory of God in heaven. He says he fell on his face out of fear. Same thing. These shepherds are out there minding their business. Suddenly, the angel shows up and the glory of God accompanies that and they are awestruck, terrified at the blazing glory of God. They are overwhelmed and intimidated and undone by what they have just seen. These ordinary, simple, humble, lowly, meek shepherds out in the field doing what shepherds do, having never encountered something like this, and suddenly they are overcome with the brilliant glory and the presence of God. On a side note, I think perhaps that these shepherds were God-fearing shepherds. And I think that because of their response here, they were terrified at the, the coming of the angel of the Lord and the glory that came as a result. 
As we continue to go through the story, you're going to see that as soon as the angels leave them, the first thing they do is they run to Bethlehem to see what, what had taken place here. They wanted to see that. And then down in chapter 2, verse 20, look what it says. The angels, or the shepherds rather, went back glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard just as had been told them. I think these were God-fearing shepherds who had heard about the Messiah, who had been understanding the prophecies given in the Old Testament. I think that they were there living in anticipation of the Messiah's coming, and suddenly they are brought face to face with the one who brought the message of his arrival. I think these men knew God. They feared him. And then the angel speaks. Verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. I love that. Do not be afraid. Again, you see the pattern. Angel shows up. Fear and intimidation on the part of the people. First words, do not be afraid. That's the pattern all throughout Scripture, and then followed by a proclamation of great news. This is exactly what happened with Zechariah. This is exactly what happened with Mary back in chapter 1. The same pattern shows up here. The angel uh, arrives. The shepherds are in fear. The angel tells them not to be afraid, and the reason they don't need to be afraid, verse 10 says, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And that word good news is the word euangelizomai, evangelism, the evangelistic message This is the best news that could ever be proclaimed anywhere. And the angel arrives telling them, I'm coming with euangelizo, with good news. I'm bringing to you the best news that anyone has ever heard. This is the high point of redemptive history as the angel arrives announcing the best news that anyone could ever receive. What kind of news is it? News of great joy. News of laughter. News of happiness. News of hilarity. News of joy, which is far greater than anyone can fathom. This is the exact opposite of what they had just experienced. Remember I said they had megan phoban? Well, now they're hearing a message of megan keras. Great joy. So put yourself in the the shoes of these shepherds. They go immediately from a moment of absolute object terror to being told the best news that anyone could ever hear. The angel knew that such good news would bring great joy. It would produce gladness and hope and joy and cheerfulness. I was thinking about something this week. This news of great joy for sinners is announced by a creature that will never experience it. Think about it. No angel has ever been saved. No demon has ever gone from fallen angel to holy angel. No no angel has ever experienced salvation. No angel has never known what it's like to be forgiven and be redeemed, and yet that's who's preaching this good news. Does that maybe help us understand a little bit why Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, speaking of the prophets, that it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, 
but you and these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You know what that means? Angels are, in a sense, so perplexed by the good news of salvation that they long to look into those things to try to comprehend them. And the word look is actually a word that means to, to bend the neck and twist the body and contort your body to get a better glimpse of something. And that's what angels do. They, in a sense, contort their bodies and twist their necks to try and get a better glimpse of this thing called salvation and redemption and forgiveness because they don't get it. They can understand it intellectually, but they'll never experience it experientially. Someone has said it this way in a poem, Holy, holy is what the angels sing, and I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption's story, they will fold their wings, for angels never felt the joy that our salvation brings. Yet here is an angel who really doesn't comprehend experientially the good news of the gospel, proclaiming to these shepherds a message of great joy. How ironic. Who's this message for? Verse 10 and 11. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for just a few special people. Right? Is that what it says? No, for all the people. And then, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Do you see it? It's a universal message, and it's an individual message. It is a message for all the people, and it's a message for you. Tremendous. You see both of them brought out here. Luke records the words of the angel where he says, I will bring this. This will be for all the people. And most likely that in its narrowest sense means Israel. Christ came to redeem Israel. Christ came to save his people. Christ came to redeem the lost sheep of the nation of Israel. And yet we know that it's broader than that. It's broader to include all people of the world, all Gentiles included. In fact, look over to Luke chapter 2, verse 30. The account of Simeon. Simeon said in verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. It's for all people. Christ came to redeem first the nation of Israel. He came to the lost sheep of his own people. And yet that was a message that would be delivered to the whole planet, to everyone, Jew and Gentile. It is a universal proclamation of good news. And is a proclamation of good news to every single individual. Look at verse 11. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior. Did you see how individual this is? The angel doesn't just say it generically, it's uh, kind of for everyone in the world. No, he leaves it there, but he also then says it's for you, particularly shepherds, this is for you. It's a message of, that's personal, it's a message that's given to these specific shepherds who themselves were in need of a Savior. And isn't that the message we proclaim today? It's the same timeless truth. We go out into the world, and every person that we meet is of the world. We, we proclaim the message of the gospel to the world. 
and we proclaim the message of the gospel to every single individual. It's for all people, and it's for you. Now, notice, notice how the angel describes Christ. Verse 11, He is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. What a precious title. It's not His name. His name is Jesus. That's His earthly name. It means God saves. It's the form, the New Testament form of the word Joshua. God saves. And the angel doesn't here use Jesus' earthly name. He uses the exalted title, Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He's the Savior. He's the one who delivers, rescues, saves, redeems, helpless, lost, broken, depraved, condemned sinners. Friends, that's the best news of the the gospel. We don't have someone who just makes our life better. We don't have someone who just redeems our marriages and fixes our problems and makes us feel good about ourselves. We have a Savior, a rescuer, a deliverer from the wrath of God, someone who will rescue us from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. We have a Savior. We have a Redeemer. We don't have a therapist. We don't have someone who just is there to kind of rearrange your life so you feel better about yourself. We have a Redeemer who is Christ, literally the Messiah, the Anointed One, the promised King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who was promised all throughout the, anoint, uh, through the Old Testament, the King who would come and establish His throne upon the earth. And though He hasn't done that yet, He's coming again and will do that one day here upon the earth. This, this is Christ, the anointed King, the one upon whom the government of the world will be upon His shoulders. This is Christ and He's Lord, God deity. I can think of no better description of Jesus Christ than this. He is the Savior, Christ the Lord. How would they find this King of kings and Lord of lords? Verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a feed trough. The King of kings, the anointed one, the ruler of heaven and earth, you will find swaddled and wrapped up in cloths and laying amongst the animals. Perhaps there were other babies born that night in Bethlehem who were swaddled and wrapped up in cloths but there were none other who were sitting and laying in a feed trough. I want want you to just kind of feel the significance of this announcement. I want you to feel the the weight of this moment. I I want you to sense really the gravity of what is being said here and and what the shepherds were told. And I want you to kind of in a moment take just a, a break from all the hustle and bustle of this life and this season and this holiday and let your mind really ponder these astonishing truths. 
that 2,000 years ago, there was born for us the Savior of the world, who is God and man together, two natures, one person, who became our Savior. And that thought alone should be enough to put us on our faces and bow our hearts and our minds before God in humble worship and praise and adoration. It gets better. Point number two, the acclaim for Christ's birth. The acclaim for Christ's birth. And just when you thought this was as marvelous as it gets, it actually gets tremendously better. Because verses 13 and 14 tell us something that took place where we actually reach the high point of this account and we see it be that much more glorious than what we've already been hearing about. Verses 13 and 14, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now stop and think about this. We read about this, we read the Christmas story, we sing the songs, and we just, we just glimpse over and glance over this, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. Do you understand? There is suddenly accompanying this small crowd gathered on the hills of Bethlehem, a whole host and tribe and army and cadre of angels that lined the sky, and suddenly the skies above them flashed with a whole company of these creatures. It must have been an amazing sight, something that we, we can't even relate to, we can't even appreciate, because this is not something that we normally experience. This is not just one angel, this is a whole company arrayed in splendor and majesty and brilliance and bright light, and it says in verse 13 that it was a multitude. The Greek word is actually a word that means a large number or a crowd. We don't know how many there were, but you know over in Revelation chapter 5 verse 11, John describes what he saw. And he describes it as 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands of angels. You know what that means? A lot. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. And then a few extra thousand more. I don't know if that's how many there were. Perhaps certainly all of the angels weren't there that day. We don't know for sure. But even if there were 10 million angels... Can you imagine this? For as far as the eye could see, all you see are angels and light. And remember, it's night. It's almost unfathomable for our minds to really pick up and, and, and fathom what they're thinking and what they're experiencing and the, the true gra- gravity and weight of, the, of this moment. Th- this had to have been a defining moment in the lives of these shepherds. And I have to imagine these guys for the rest of their life described this particular event. You know, when I was 26, I remember that day well because I was out in the fields and suddenly the brightest light you've ever seen flooded the skies. And me and my friends, my fellow shepherds, we we were standing there in the midst of the most brilliant display of angelic glory that you can even imagine. I, I was there. Can you imagine them? You can just imagine them talking about that. 
Verse 13, what were these angels doing? They were praising God. They were doing what angels do. The shepherds were doing what they were supposed to do, and the the angels were doing what they were supposed to do. And suddenly this, this whole multitude, these millions and millions and millions of angels show up, and they're offering praise to God for sending Christ. And they're saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He's well pleased. Now, notice, notice it says that they were saying this. It doesn't say they were singing this. We just sang the song this morning, angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing. Or Well, we get the idea that they're singing because that's the song that we sing. We don't know if they actually sang it. It says they said it. Praising God. Saying glory to God. In the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom he's pleased. They had a singular message, and the message is this, glory be to the highest God. Glory be, the the, the greatest glory be given and shown to God for what he has done tonight. And certainly these angels had been told by God in eternity past about the fact that this day would actually finally one day come. That they would actually hear about the fact that God would one day send His Son to be the Savior of the world. He had formed them long ago of His plan of salvation when the second member of the Trinity would, would take on human flesh and step His feet upon this planet and live amongst us. They had heard about this. They had known about this. They had heard about the fact that Christ would come in humility to, to save sinners and live a perfect life and go to the cross and die and be raised from the dead. They had heard the whole account. Finally, they understand and they see the moment when when Christ comes, when the one who would bring salvation to mankind actually enters this world. And the only thing you can do when that moment occurs is you can only erupt in praise. Unhindered worship spilling from the lips of those who had heard this account for a long period of time. So they came shouting glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, this phrase has caused all kinds of confusion. This phrase has caused all kinds of misunderstanding. And on earth peace among men. Many people understand this to mean that God is just there to kind of give you peace, to give you peace of mind, to give you some rest for your weary soul, to, to make sure that there's an absence of wars upon this earth in which we live, this kind of generic, general idea of peace, subjective peace, I feel good because I have God in my life. That's not what this means. This is talking about objective peace, peace with God because your sin has been removed, the, the, the relationship between you and God has been reconciled. There, there's been a reestablishment of your relationship with your creator God who has redeemed you through Christ. That's the kind of peace he's talking about. And it doesn't come to the world generically. It comes to those specifically who receive his son. You want peace? That's where peace comes from. Peace doesn't come generically just by living in a world where we hope and wish and dream of a day when there's peace on this planet. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the objective peace that comes when the enmity between us and God is removed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And secondly, the last part of the phrase, 
peace among men with whom he is pleased. This has also caused all kinds of confusion with the, the thought that at Christmas time you're supposed to do kind things and you're supposed to be acting in goodwill towards individuals and you're supposed to think good thoughts about people and you're to extend good deeds to people. And you have kind of the idea here of a 60s Hallmark card where you send that and you wish good tidings to people. That's not what this is talking about. I think maybe in this case, the NAS version of the Bible actually didn't get it quite right here. It says here, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And the King James kind of says the same thing. And on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And the idea here is it makes it sound like that God is going to grant spiritual peace and blessings to those that he finds favorable. That, that the idea is that he, he, he's going to give spiritual peace and grace to those who have deserved it or those who have earned it. That's not what he's talking about. If you have the NIV version this morning, I think you actually have a better translation. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Who are those who enjoy peace and who are those who enjoy the grace of God? It's those upon whom God's favor rests. That's sovereign grace. That, that's God in His infinite wisdom and His infinite love choosing graciously those whom He wants to pour out His kindness and His mercy and His grace. God, on some, choosing to sovereignly give the peace of His salvation. I believe that's what He's talking about. It's open to all who will believe Him, all who will receive Christ, all who will welcome the gift of God's grace in their life through the person and work of Jesus Christ, but it is determined by sovereign grace. Who are those who receive it? Those who simply have the favor of God resting upon them. Do you see now why the angels erupt in praise? Do you see why it takes a multitude, a company, millions and millions and millions of angels to communicate the kind of level of praise and glory and adoration that is due God in light of this message? If you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, it is because you have been shown favor through the grace and the kindness of God and I believe that what those angels did 2,000 years ago is what we should do today. That we should likewise erupt in corporate, joyful, glad praise. So I wonder this morning, does, does this account of the incarnation and the birth of Christ still astonish you? Does it still produce within your heart a, a sense of awe and wonder that this is truly the miracle of miracles? Does your heart erupt in praise and thankfulness and adoration and, and gratitude be, for the peculiar glory of the incarnation? Friends, this is the real meaning of Christmas. And when we leave in a few moments, we want our hearts spilling forth and our words spilling forth the same message as the angels. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men on whom His favor rests. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank You.
for this remarkable good news, for this remarkable, wonderful, glorious description of those events surrounding the birth of our Savior. God, we thank you that we are those people, those upon whom your favor rests. And Lord, I pray that if there are some this morning who are here and your favor does not yet rest upon them because they're still under your wrath, Lord, would you open their eyes, convict their hearts, unplug their ears so they could hear the gospel message clearly for the first time. They are sinners under your wrath, under judgment, who've broken your law and are in need of grace and forgiveness, a grace and forgiveness which comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you draw them to yourself today? Would you bring them into a right relationship with you and give them the good news of great joy? For the rest of us, Lord, let us respond in love and wonder and praise at the incredible work that you've done in condescending to us and stooping to us to live among us and be the Savior of the world. We thank you for these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.